Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm Mukulika Banerjee. I'll be chairing the discussion this evening. A very warm welcome to you uh, to this, what we hope will be a promising hour and a half of, of debate and discussion. Um, the four speakers we have this evening, um, I, I'll introduce them in the order that they will speak. And the way we have arranged the um, discussion for this evening is the following. Because the topic uh, this evening is Hong Kong, the struggle at the end of history, we'll start with our two guest journalists, uh, Raymond Lee, who is head of Chinese at uh, BBC, and uh, for going first, and then Isabella Steger, who is a journalist at the Wall Street Journal, who has been in Hong Kong uh, while, the last, uh, while the protests have been carrying on and will provide a uh, uh, eyewitness view of, of, the, of the happenings. Uh, I'm very proud to say that Isabella is also uh, an alum of the LSC, so a special warm welcome back. Um, Isabella and Raymond will go first. I will then introduce the second set of issues, uh, which will be addressed by uh, first Professor Danny Kuo, who many of you may know, director of the newly launched Southeast Asia Center, but also uh, professor of Economics and International Development, uh, followed finally by Professor Connor Gerty, who is the Director of the Institute for Public Affairs and Professor of Law at LSE. Um, I'll explain more how we go on, but the aim is to make this as interactive and break it up um, so that we can take themes, have various people speak to them, and then leave plenty of time for Q&A. It's a fantastic turnout, and we look forward to taking lots of questions from the audience. Uh, so can I first invite uh, Raymond Lee uh, to speak? Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me tonight. And uh, I'm very impressed by the big turnout tonight. Because before coming over here, I thought maybe uh, the interest in the whole event has died down uh, in a way. Uh, but then, of course, I was wrong. Before I start uh, summarizing uh, my observation on Hong Kong, I think I should declare my interest first, uh, my personal link with, the, uh, with Hong Kong. Because, of course, I'm a, a British citizen, but then at the same time, I'm a Hong Kong uh, you know, permanent resident. So in a way, if I'm biased in my observation or analysis of the event, please forgive me. Okay? Well, I think I don't need to really go into the details on what has happened and, or what happened during the period of Occupied Central Movement. But then I'd like to start by highlighting a few points I have observed uh, throughout the whole event. First of all, it's fair to say it is the longest uh, protest in Hong Kong uh, in many years. Yeah. Um, if we remember or calculated the number of days, it did last for 81 days. Starting from September 26, or sometimes people will count it from 28th, Never mind if I count it from 26. Yeah. And then uh, the official end actually was on December the 15th. So 
the whole 81 days actually was the whole period. Secondly, I would say is perhaps the most violent or confrontational event or protest happened to Hong Kong for nearly 50 years. I think last time we saw this kind of, uh, you know, a protest or confrontation or even uh, the kind of violence uh, involved in the protest was in 1967 when the British colonial government were uh, in the way, uh, kind of, uh, you know, cracking down or uh, fighting against the protesters. Also, what I can say is, it's perhaps also the most politically and socially divided event so far in Hong Kong. I don't know how many of you are from Hong Kong, because I got many friends and colleagues uh, from Hong Kong. Over the last few months, um, something happened to me was like, if I got uh, visitors from Hong Kong, the first thing they want to you know, talk to me before starting conversation will be, Raymond, I need to tell you, I'm a blue. Or Raymond, I'm a yellow. So of course we all know yellow representing the color of Occupy Central Movement. And then blue or sometimes a purple representing the group of people who are opposing it or who are against it. To be honest, before then, my only experience of this kind of like a very politically labeled or a divided sort of identity was in Taiwan. Because I started covering, you know, Taiwan election and, you know, uh, every time when I went to Taiwan, Taiwan people, uh, Taiwanese people would, would tell me that, Raymond, I'm supporting green camp. Or uh, Raymond, I'm supporting, uh, you know, blue camp. So in the way, I suddenly realized that now Hong Kong socially or politically is becoming more like Taiwan. Uh, but this is not a criticism. This is only the observation I've got. Yeah? Lastly, what I can say is this is perhaps the most serious political crisis for Hong Kong government as well as for Beijing government as well since the handover. I think for the first time, we can see both Hong Kong government or leaders in Beijing are really worrying about the situation in Hong Kong. Before then, perhaps they thought the situation in Hong Kong were very much under control in their hands. But then now they realize it's not that straightforward. And more importantly, they suddenly realize that they've lost the understanding uh, about the young generation in Hong Kong. That's even more, more worrying, I would say. Or it's fair to say they've lost hearts of young people in Hong Kong as well. So right now, of course, we know the Hong Kong government is uh, you know, conducting so-called second stage of the public consultation on the uh, MPC, you know, the, the, the National Parliament Congress proposal on Hong Kong political reform. It started on the, uh, January the 7th and then will be lasting for two months. So which means by, the, you know, by March the 6th, they should actually decide whether they should take the, you know, the proposal to the Hong Kong Legislative Council 
to you know, pass the required endorsement. However, we all know that right now in Hong Kong, or according to basic law, if we want to take any proposal, political reform proposal, you need to have two-thirds of the Legislative Council members to approve it. Well, the reality is the pro-Beijing members, there are about 43 of them. So in order to get two-thirds, you need to get 47. So which means the Hong Kong government need to at least to get four members of, you know, of pro-democracy parties to be defected or at least change their mind to support the government. Otherwise, I'm afraid that that lock will continue. I think that's it from me. Great. That's a brilliant introduction. Thank you. Um, hi, thank you for having me. I was a student here from 2003-2006 and a steward, so I've spent many, many, many hours in this theatre. It's very strange to be up here now. Um, so I was covering the protests from, well, we were gearing up for it since about June, because as you know, June 4th, um, the anniversary of the Tiananmen crackdown is remembered every year in Hong Kong, and that's always a sensitive time. And so around then, we've been preparing to cut, you know, at the time, the so-called Occupy Central was supposed to be on sometime in October. It was a day or maybe two days of organized, rehearsed civil disobedience to sort of instill this idea of civil disobedience in Hong Kong because we've never had anything like that before. But as we now know, things didn't turn out that way. And the chronology is on September 22nd, um, there was a one-week-long school boycott organized by universities or tertiary education institutions in Hong Kong. On the fifth day of that boycott, um, September the 26th, uh, secondary school students joined in. So the thousands of students were out of school. That evening, uh, some students tried to climb into a fenced-off area next to the uh, legislative chamber. And I guess the rest is history. Then the pepper spray came out by the police, and students were arrested. The next day, thousands more students turned out. Then the next day, September 28th, tens of thousands more students and people came out when police used tear gas, which, you know, I know tear gas is a pretty common thing in, you know, say, football games in Europe or something, but, you know, you never see scenes like that in Hong Kong. You know, we're not a city accustomed to violence or, or police force in any way. So a lot of people came out because of that. But how did it all end? Well, it ended kind of with a whimper, or I guess maybe a, a stoic display of, of bravery, however you want to see it, or depending if you're blue or yellow ribbon. The students and some other protesters stood to the end when the last site in Causeway Bay was cleared, and they were handcuffed, and they were arrested, and taken to police vans under the glare of um, live TV. And now hundreds of these students uh, and protesters are facing potential charges, a potential prosecution from the Department of Justice for participating or organizing illegal assemblies. <clears throat> At its height, something like tens of thousands of people were actually on the streets. But obviously, as time went on, these numbers dwindled. Why and what happened? Where did all these people go? Why are the opinion polls, as time goes on, showing that the support for the occupation was waning, and more and more people seem to be accepting the government's line, which is pocket first this proposal by Beijing that we give you one man, one vote, but the candidates must first be pre-screened by Beijing. Pocket that first, and come 2022, maybe we can talk more about further reforms to have a more democratic system, they say. And According to opinion polls, if you can trust them, more people seem to be um, willing to accept this fact, you know, to the frustration of many of the protesters in the pro-democracy camp. 
why has this happened? I mean, I think many were tired and fatigued. Many went home. Many went back to work. They had normal lives to carry on with. Many were not particularly politically aware or, or, or conscious, I think, and a lot just came out to support the students. And I think at the beginning, when I was down there, the, a lot of the slogans were, in addition to wanting democracy, it was, you know, support and protect the students. You know, people saw that students were being treated in this way by police, and they wanted to come out and protect them. They went home as time went on. And this was a strategy, I think, that was calculated by the Hong Kong government and indeed Beijing, that you know, public opinion would also start turning against the movement as time went on. And, you know, and now we have this very, you know, as Raymond pointed out, this very, very divided society. And sometimes I also find myself thinking, am I living in Hong Kong? Like, where am I living? Am I living in Taiwan? Why are we thinking in terms of colors? Like, it's like Thailand, red and yellow, uh, Taiwan, blue and green. You know, you cannot sit at a dinner table you cannot go out to any social um, activity anymore without uh, bringing this up. And if you know that someone in your social group or family is, feels differently to you, you don't bring it up. You know, I have a relative who is a senior policeman, and we don't bring it up. You know, my mom just says, just, just, don't, just don't talk about it at the table. And, you know, I know many, many families who are like that. You know, kids who don't go home because, you know, the, the living space in Hong Kong is already tiny. You have to go home and you have to face your parents who are probably conservative. They may have a business in China. You are camped out every day and you, you know, may have been beaten bloodied by police and you don't want to go home and have to start discussing this problem. And now that it's, I mean, the movement, the occupation has ended, but so where are we now? Is it over? Well, the students will tell you the adamant that it's not over. I think part of the problem is that people, the protesters didn't connect the dots well enough between um, people's livelihoods and democracy. You know, why, why if I get one man, one vote in 2017, uh, is my life going to be better? And, you know, there's very few societies more pragmatic and commercially minded than Hong Kong, right? It's a city which, you know, was put on the map because of commerce, because of making money. And, you know, during the protests, you saw people interviewed on TV, taxi drivers, delivery men, parents who just, like return the roads to us, you know, we're just trying to make a living. Um, you, you're adding a half an hour, extra half an hour to my commute every day. And the protesters will say, yes, but we're doing this, you know, for your long-term benefit. You know, in the long term, it's better for you to have a more democratic system that's more transparent with greater accountability. And perhaps they did not explain that well enough. And the occupation sort of um, uh, disrupted um, the message that they were trying to send. Now they're trying to go out into communities, into public housing estates, into schools, into different groups to try and bring people back to the original message, which is um, why we are fighting, why they're fighting for democracy in 2017. Um, and no doubt also, I'm sure, the two student groups, which are the Hong Kong Federation of Students and Scholarism, they are looking back, thinking, uh, coulda, woulda, shoulda, you know, what if they had chosen to escalate their actions in those first few critical days when there were tens of thousands of people out in the streets? But they didn't because they always wanted to seek a compromise. They wanted to compromise between the students and the pro-democracy lawmakers and other civil society groups that were taking part. Some say that they were too conservative because of that. And, you know, should they have called off the occupation? Should they have sort of retreated... Um, when they still had the moral high ground, would that have made a difference instead of sort of letting the movement be cleared by police and dying down in this way? And, um, and Raymond also mentioned a very important point about Beijing losing the, the youth of this generation, and I think that's going to be a very, very serious problem to come in terms of governance for Hong Kong and for Beijing. 
And um, I just have one anecdote that I want to share um, that kind of encapsulates this. And a couple of weeks, months ago, a very, very senior uh, bureaucrat in Hong Kong, um, Fanny Law, if any Hong Kong people here know of her, she said in a, in a, in a radio show um, that she had a friend who said to her, um, Fanny, I, uh, I know people who are saying they want to leave Hong Kong and immigrate because they're afraid, not because they're afraid of the Chinese Communist Party, but they're afraid of the students, of the young people. And then 18-year-old um, Joshua Wong, who you may know as the leader of scholarism, and he said, and to that I say to Fanny Law to tell your friend, you can go to a place where there's no Communist Party, but you cannot go to a place where there's no young people. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, I've asked, um, I'm going to invite Danny and Connor to speak in that order, to now take this Hong Kong story and think a little bit more comparatively of similar occupation pro-democracy movements in Asia and beyond. So, Danny, thank you. Thank you, Moku. Uh, and, and thank you for this occasion. It's a wonderful event to try and exchange ideas like this. I don't myself have any personal experiences in Hong Kong. I haven't been tear gassed, not, not recently anyway. <laughs> um, and, you know, I sit in my office and I try and study political change and economic growth, and I try and make sense of this based on the evidence that I am able to get. And so as I listen to Raymond and Isabella tell me about the changes that they've seen, I'm very touched. I'm very touched by the kind of concrete pieces of evidence they've brought to us. And I need to gauge that against the other pieces of evidence that I've been able to put together. Now, we forget now that actually... Isabella told stories about tens of thousands of students who were getting violent, that all the different colors of the rainbow coming in. My goodness, is it becoming like Bangkok? You know, what's happened to peaceful Hong Kong? And we forget, actually, that early on in September and October, the perception by the rest of the world about what was happening in Hong Kong wasn't violence and long duration. But my goodness, it was about how polite all the demonstrators were. The students were so well-behaved. You know, they went out there, they picked up after themselves, they picked up your garbage if you dropped some, they left the streets clean. That was the impression everybody took away with the Umbrella Movement and Occupy Central. And I thought, this is something that you have to really admire. People want something that's obviously very noble, something very good, otherwise they wouldn't behave in this way. So when I was asked by Muku, well, can you think of other instances, parallels with what we've seen in Hong Kong, I scratched my head. I think about Parliament Square, okay, different kind of student demonstrations. I think about demonstrations that I was involved with. I won't tell you which side, but they weren't nearly as well behaved. So I thought, well, are there any instances of this? And actually, it turns out that there are. So we've heard about Joshua Wong and scholarism, and you all know that he has been you know, in the forefront of, of student activism ever since he was, gosh, eight years old or something. Because pre-13, uh, not eight. <laughs> when he was 13 years old, the Chinese government, PRC, had attempted a patriotic education reform in Hong Kong, and he had led the movement to resist that. So I thought, well, that's an interesting story. Can I go back and think about this polite student leadership. Okay, the method of protest is where 
Everyone's polite. Everyone's well-behaved. You've got supporters on the sides of the streets not inciting everyone to violence, but saying things, chanting, please don't harm the students. This is what Hong Kong was like. So I thought, well, where else have I seen this? And here's where I've seen this. Someone wrote down the following. He wrote, observers remembered the organization and the logistics that had produced these thousands of students neatly seated in a hall, each one provided with a box of cakes, buns, peanuts, and bananas, the leftovers of which were placed back in the same box and carried away by ushers along the aisles so that at the end of the protest, the hall was left neat and tidy when everyone marched off to the buses to go home. The students were well-organized, disciplined, and cohesive. They had remarkable self-control. Well, echoes of what we've just seen in Occupy Central Umbrella Movement. Who were these students? The writer of these words was actually Lee Kuan Yew. And it was Lee Kuan Yew writing about who? About Chinese-educated communist agitators in Singapore were moving into place, infiltrating the political system, and attempting to set in motion a communist regime in Singapore in the late 1950s. Lee Kuan Yew reflected on this, and he said, culturally, these students lived in a world apart. Partly in consequence, they felt dispossessed, and their lack of economic opportunity turned their schools into breeding grounds for this political movement. I thought, well, that's rather harsh. You know, students are just trying to do the best they can. But, you know, is there, is there something further we need to look at then beyond just being polite, being, you know, attempting to try and do the right thing? So here's the problem I have with the picture. And for the fun of it, I'm going to take a position that's a bit more extreme. Here's the problem I have with the picture that's been painted for you. The idea that we've heard so far is that these are pro-democracy protests against a regime that does not want to be pro-democracy, that does not want to give them democracy. Okay. So what do I make of the evidence then? There are different surveys. You can pick and choose among your surveys, but I don't think that there's any consensus built, that there's an overwhelming majority that approves of Hong Kongers, that approves of the Umbrella Movement and of Occupy Central. Okay. Many ordinary Hong Kongers seem to be more concerned about property prices, employment, their pensions, their retirement packages, than they are about political freedoms. So here's the problem, and I know I have to end now, because as I look around the world at the nature of protests, as an economist, I can relate easily to people who want bread and butter issues. And I am puzzled when these bread and butter issues are subverted for higher goals of political freedom. I want to dig deeper. And I hope that this evening, as the evening progresses, we don't go into this with an ideological bias, but we go into this and try and find the evidence base that says it one way or the other. And I hope that by the end of the evening, I will come away saying, you know, I began wrong. I began with the wrong prejudice. I shouldn't have been thinking about economics because there are indeed these higher goals. 
let's find those higher goals. I think it's very important if you want to change history to stand out from the rest. Uh, I've got exactly five minutes. This is hauntingly disciplined. And you guys have even got this contagion of discipline because you don't even applaud. I can't tell you how disconcerting it is for us. We put all this work into these five minutes and we complete this five minutes and we're quite proud and we get ready and then it's the next guy immediately. So... uh, uh, here I am. I've got five minutes. It's five minutes to seven. I'm going to give you one minute per four warnings. Four warnings for people who engage in polite protest. Uh, beware, first warning, of history being on your side. The people who have power say it's the end of history because they think history is bound to culminate in them. It's a disease of power to regard oneself as the end of history. History is ongoing, is constantly moving. And guess what? We are where we are because people killed lots of people. The things we think stand above the fray now, democracy, the rule of law, human rights, they are the result of organized, effective mayhem. This country is obsessing about something that happened 800 years ago, some kind of Magna Carta thing, while ignoring contemporary (laughs) challenges. They forget that it was a coup and that it imposed powers on the king that hitherto he had exercised for himself. We forget that we executed the king when we celebrate our democracy. We forget the vast throngs that gathered and were shot by the British forces in 19th century England because they demanded the vote. They were put down, executed, deported, until very recently it was eccentric to argue for democracy. Well-known philosophers whom we admire today thought that educated people should get two or three votes, or in the case of somebody like me, ten votes. (laughs) And that ordinary people should get nothing. And they were thought of as important people. Years into the 20th century, it was regarded as rude to suggest that a woman should have a vote. And they made life hell. How did the working class get the vote? By the accident of huge war. It was felt inappropriate to have them all die on a massive scale and deny them the right to vote when they came home. Our values are rooted in blood. Nonviolence only works very occasionally. Curious situations such as the southern states of America. Northern Ireland might have done, but the IRA got impatient. That's the first one. The next three, the next three have 35 seconds each. (laughs) Beware, second, of having history on your side is the first. Beware of having foreign supporters. Foreign supporters don't give a damn about you. (laughs) They are positioning their own selves and using you. Why did... This country discovered the incredible importance of democracy shortly before they, in inverted commas, handed back Hong Kong to the Chinese. Mr. Patton was sent out to say how important democracy is. They'd had how long in order to practice what they had begun to preach? Facing defeat, they recovered their values. When they could loot the place for money, there was no talk 
of values. British values are a creature of colonial defeat. They are not found when there is the capacity for domestic exploitation of abroad. The Americans, what's happened in Egypt? We were all in favour, weren't we, of the Arab Spring. We now seem to have had, effectively, an army coup in Egypt, replacing Mubarak, but not the structures of government that underpinned him. Uh, what about these trials and so on? Well, an Australian has escaped, so that's all right then. Who gives a damn about anybody else? Libya, mayhem. We fabricated a civil society because we wanted to get rid of Gaddafi. Nobody even notices now the horrors unleashed on North Africa as a result of this disgraceful, disgraceful act based on support for a Libyan civil society. Syria, we were all against President Assad, until the wrong people began revolting against President Assad, and now we're sort of half-friendly with President Assad again, and <laughs> as long as the right person kills him, we'll give them an honour, but if the wrong person kills them, they're a terrorist. <laughs> Worse than having... Uh, 20 seconds left. Worse... <laughs> third warning. Worse than, 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 than having foreign supporters is not having foreign supporters. <laughs> There are pockets of the world of which we know very little who are arguing for things to which they should rightfully be given and absolutely, undisputably so, and they get nothing and nobody even notices they're killed because they have no foreign benefactors. And you know them all in your own minds, the places which have unarguable arguments for autonomy, for individual rights and so on, and they disappear because they don't matter. Beware of not having them too. And lastly... Beware of reliance on law. There's a contemporary relevance here. The Occupy movement here was driven out of its positions under human rights law. They were removed from the St. Paul's precincts in a way that was compatible with their human rights. Danny mentioned Parliament Square. Parliament Square was rendered a no-go area for protesters here on hygienic grounds and tourists coming to gaze at the, Churchill of Church, at, the, at the statue of Churchill would be affronted by a smelly person who didn't believe in foreign occupations. They're gone under cover of the Human Rights Act. Beware of human rights law because it can be used to destroy decisions uh, upholding the, uh, the, 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 the American interceptions of communications in which the British have colluded. All fine now because of the accessibility of the law. Beware of law. These are the four warnings. Uh, and when, if I get another chance, I may have used up my remaining five minutes, I will say to you four pointers about how to make it a success. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much for applauding, uh, Connor. Everybody. No. <laughs> oh, I did ask for that, didn't I? <laughs> you got it. You won that one. Okay, now what I'm going to do is um, uh, invite the panel to comment on, on a set of more broad themes. And if I may uh, use uh, the prerogative of the chair to just bring, to cite two examples from my own research, very far from, from Hong Kong, which are perfect antidotes, I think, to especially what Connor said, but also response to uh, um, the, the rest of the issues that have come up. One is the place of violence and nonviolence and, and civil disobedience and its efficacy. Just as a point of information, sim since, simply because it's so little known, one of the most effective anti-colonial movements anywhere in the world 
took place for 17 years amongst, guess whom? The Pashtuns against British colonialism. Um, and it did bring it down to its knees precisely at a time when the colonial government was expecting a violent guerrilla warfare in the northwest frontier of Afghanistan. Uh, they got a nonviolent civil disobedience movement, and that drove them out. They saw it through to 47. So that's just one fact. The second thing is a much more contemporary event. In fact, it happened today. Um, today in India, a very uh, a modest but enormously important election took place, and the results came out. Does anyone here know about it? A couple of people. Okay. So it's momentous because um, uh, it's, it was the elections to the De Delhi Assembly, which has 70 seats in, in a regional assembly. Uh, but the party that was vanquished was the Bharatiya Janata Party, which forms the national government, which has not lost an election in a very long time, which seemed invincible, <coughs> that seemed entrenched. And it was taken on by a party called the Ahmadmi Party, the Common Man Party, right? the party of the common man, that broke all the rules of, of, uh, or, or flouted all the rules of what had become a certain kind of electoral uh, democracy which involved big money, cronyism, uh, incentives, etc., and said it was possible to have a clean government. And they were supported precisely by people demanding their rights, which is to go back to what the questions, the sort of questions Danny raised. And while people thought they had a chance, they had no idea how much of a chance they had. People kind of hoped they would win this common man. That, you know, everybody likes to support the underdog. But when the results came out this morning, out of 70 seats, the Ahmadmi Party won 67. And this huge juggernaut of the BJP won three. The Congress, which is over 100 years old and has you know, been the national government in India for two uh, two terms, uh, won zero seats. So it showed something quite profound about change and the capacity for elections, what democratic rights can in fact achieve in terms of addressing very local, very urgent problems of uh, what uh, Danny calls bread and butter issues. It was about electricity. It was about water. It was about primary health centers. It wasn't about abstract, philosophical, lofty ideals. So what I'm going to do now is just invite uh, our panelists in the same order as they have been before to reflect on some of these issues more uh, generally about discipline and restraint of, of civil disobedience, how, how much more difficult that is in any political movement uh, than any kind of flashy, uh, glamorous, violent guerrilla uh, movements, the importance, especially in this setting, of course, of students as the main agents of change in, in so many of these movements, the young people. In India, for instance, in this Ahmadmi party, it's an overwhelming number of young people who are volunteering to put in their energies. What is this about? The sites, the physical spaces in which these movements are taking place, downtown Hong Kong, Wall Street, St. Paul's, Parliament Square, um, the public squares of Tahrir and, and in Tunisia and elsewhere. Um, and finally, what are they demanding? Why is it so important, um, as Isabella was saying before, why is it so important to have that right 
to be counted, to uh, be present, and to have that identity as a citizen that has some choice in electoral, uh, has some electoral choices that is being denied to them. Why do these issues become so important? So I'll invite all of you to, uh, to reflect on this for another five minutes each, and then we'll take questions, if that's okay. Thank you. Sorry, of course. Yes, okay. Please. They're not going to clap for me. So, <laughs> <laughs> come on. <laughs> CT, sir. Um, what I can say is, first of all, if we look back the you know to the very beginning of the whole event, we all know that it started by one law professor. Benny Tai, yeah. You remember actually, he wrote the first article, I think in February or January, I can't remember, in uh, 2013, on one of the Hong Kong leading newspapers, Hong Kong Economic Journal. In that particular article, he said, well, if Beijing still can't give us what they promised, you know, on direct election, on, on full democracy. We should go for the, the, the way of civil disobedience. I think that's the first time he raised the issue. And of course, along with other co-organizers, he started the whole process. If you remember, actually, even before the whole things, you know, kind of broke out, it took three of them, the whole year to conduct the public consultation. So I could say, up to that point, it was like a you know, very academic, um, democratic, or very civilized sort of process to discuss about the possibility of taking the issue in a manner of civil disobedience. However, when you know, the things broke out in September uh, 2014, uh, last year. Um, very quickly, the things became, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, out of their hands. So very quickly, in the way, student leaders took the lead and then, you know, controlled the whole event. And maybe later on, especially in the later stage of the whole, you know, two or three months, and uh, actually we didn't really know who was in charge or in control of the whole demonstration. I think that's when that you know, uh, happened, obviously, you sometimes you, you couldn't really distinguish whether this is for real democracy or not. Very quickly, try to answer the second question. Why? Why those pro-democracy activists became so, you know, I would say impatient, and uh, try to, you know, uh, take things uh, to the streets rather than in the sort of uh, classrooms or, you know, in the sort of uh, meeting halls. Well, again, I think I would advise or suggest all of us to look back at history. In recent decades, actually, the first call for democracy uh, happened in Hong Kong in 1984 when the colonial government uh, published a paper uh, talking about, well, we should consider introduce 
so-called representative democracy in Hong Kong. However, that consultation ended in a conclusion um, based on the uh, government-sponsored survey saying, actually, 70 people of Hong Kong doesn't like the idea. Only 30% of them like it. So let's put it on shelf. And then, of course, uh, if we remember, in 1990, um, the basic law passed by the Hong Kong, uh, sorry, by the Chinese MPC. In that particular paper or document, it says there shouldn't be any political reform uh, until 2007. So you can see the timetable, you know, kind of put back to, you know, how long? 17 years later. Yeah. I remember just before 2007, maybe 2004 or 5, I can't remember exactly the date, there was, a, again, consultation by the Hong Kong Special Administrative Zone government uh, saying that, well, we can have a public consultation and talking about political reform. And then some political parties, including some of the pro-Beijing political parties, saying, oh, well, in that case, shall we try? 2007, we could have direct election or some kind of a political reform, making the uh, chief executive election or the election of the legislative council members more accountable or more transparent. What happened? Well, MPC... Actually, upon the request by the Hong Kong government, issued the so-called explanation on the basic law, saying, well, when we said no change until 2007, which means doesn't include 2007. You have to wait for another five years, which is 2012. Unfortunately, we know on that year, again, uh, nothing really happened uh, because the pro-democracy parties didn't like the uh, proposal put forward by the Hong Kong government, saying that, well, you didn't promise that there will be one person, one vote sort of uh, election and, uh, you know, to a certain you know, timeline. At last, we got it last year. And, uh, but then, unfortunately, uh, yes, at the end, we got the one-person, one-vote system, but before then, upon the nomination stage, again, Chinese government or MPC, certainly, yeah, raised up the barrier. Because in the current system, any candidates who want to run for the chief executive election, we only require 10% of the election committee members' nomination. Now there are 1,200 members you know, in the election committee, yeah? So which means you just need 120 votes to become a candidate. Under the new proposal, yes, at the end you got a one person, one vote, but then you need to have 50% of that, you know, of course they rename it into nomination committee. So which means you need 600 votes to become a candidate. So, of course, the rule of the game has changed. I think certainly because of that, that has actually led some of the pro-democracy activists saying, we've been cheated by Beijing. And not only just for one year, 
But then we have been waiting for this for 30 years, but still we are not getting it. And of course, one, one last point, I think it's not just only about the election itself. There are, of course, some other factors. You can mention it's about the increasing friction between mainlanders and the Hong Kong people. It could be because of uh, you know, the increasing frustration or disillusion among Hong Kong young people about their future. But then also it could be about the unpopularity of the current Hong Kong chief executive, Xi Weileng, as well. I think all the factors combined together leading to a very important factor, which is lack of mutual trust between the pro-democracy activist and Beijing government or Hong Kong government. I'll stop here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um. Thank you. Mukri, I'll take your points that you raised uh, sort of in order. Um, I want to start by drawing on Taiwan as um, a parallel here, uh, based on what you talked about, discipline and restraint, and um, you know, why are people demanding elections and democracy? And indeed, Taiwan is a very um, inspirational and instructive, correct or not, um, example for the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong. I mean, for, for obvious reasons, you know, shared history, both Chinese communities and so on. And during, I guess, since September 28th and maybe in mid-December, the question that I kept getting asked was, so what do you think? Did the protesters win? I mean, they lost, right, because they didn't get what they wanted. And I mean, you have to adjust your horizon a little bit. And then people, I know that they're starting to think, um, okay, let's look at what happened in Taiwan. Last year, we had the Sunflower Movement occupation in Taiwan, sort of against similar, a slightly similar issue of trade with China, and you know, the root of it was you know, the relationship with mainland China, basically. And in that instance, in Taiwan, the students, I guess they won a victory temporarily in, um, in that instance. But you know, now I think people in Hong Kong are reflecting you know, the need for discipline, restraint, and patience. I mean, Taiwan got to where it is now after decades and decades of fighting for it. You know, like many lives were lost, a lot of blood was shed, many students went to prison. And of course, like during the occupation, everyone is so swept up and passionate in what's happening and they think that this is the one activity or the one, the one movement that's going to give them what they want. But that, was, that isn't the case and that is not going to be the case. And people are now talking about, in Taiwan you had you know, the Formosa or Kaohsiung incident you know, where um, uh, protesters were imprisoned and people literally gave up their futures and their lives for democracy and that's why Taiwan has what it has today. So, you know, that's why people are now sort of going back into communities and, I guess, spreading the seed and the flower of democracy, if, if, if you like. And, um, you know, democracy was a one in a day, and perhaps at the time people felt so um, passionate about what was happening. They couldn't see at the time that this is, this is a much longer game that they have to be playing. Um, to Muku's point about, you know, the Pashtos took 17 years of um, nonviolence to, to get the British out. And, um, well, why are they demanding what they are demanding? And again, again in both places, uh, this sort of uh, blossoming and development of the separate identity. You know, for China, for Beijing, there's only one way to be Chinese, right? You're ethnically Chinese, you love China, you love the party. 
there's other ways of being Chinese. There's other notions of what it means to be Chinese. In Hong Kong, a lot of people will say, I love the country, but I don't love the party, for example. Sometimes you see people waving the old nationalist Kuomintang flag at protests, which upsets Beijing very much. Um, some people wave the old British colonial flag. I don't, I don't really understand the thinking behind that, but it's just a way of, <laughs> it's just a way of expressing, I guess, that you know, they are anything but... Uh, Chinese in the way that the Beijing government wants them to think of being Chinese. Mm. And it's the same with Taiwan, right? This whole identity of being Taiwanese as separate to being mainland Chinese has taken decades um, to develop to where it is now. And I think there was a recent poll uh, published in Taiwan uh, by Tengji University that said the amount of people identifying as Taiwanese rather than Chinese and in favor of independence are both at all-time highs. You, you get similar sort of polling in Hong Kong, like people who identify only with being Hong Kong rather than Hong Kong Chinese or, or ethnically Chinese or, or Chinese or whatever. Um, and you also get a very small, but uh, the beginnings of a rumbling of self-determination in Hong Kong. I mean, whatever that means. I mean, that's, that's not possible right now, but, you know, it, exists, it existed in theory and in writing before, but, you know, it is drawing attention and people are thinking about it and reading into it. And how else can you express that way, that feeling of uh, being separate and different from Beijing? And people feel that they can go to the ballot box to get it, and that is exactly what happened in Taiwan. You know, these recent elections, local elections that happened in Taiwan, were a huge inspiration and maybe, you know, gave a boost of confidence to people in Hong Kong. Like, hey, you know, you have an independent candidate winning the Taipei mayoral seat, you know, beating the KMT ruling juggernaut and the DPP. And you have the KMT just losing massively across all the local elections on the island in Taiwan, showing that people feel a deep sense of antipathy towards the KMT's policies, cross-strait policies. And, you know, for years, obviously, they've been banging on about close economic ties with uh, mainland China, and that's only going to be beneficial for Taiwan. Similarly, in Hong Kong, close economic ties with mainland, everyone gets to reap the benefits. Well, clearly, many people in both Taiwan and Hong Kong feel that that's not the case. They see something uh, loftier, more important than, I guess, immediate bread and butter issues. It's to do with identity. It's to do with uh, a feeling of uniqueness and separation and I mean, people in Hong Kong feel that, hey, if in Taiwan they can go to the ballot box to make it happen for them, why can't we? I wonder if I can pick up on Muku's point where the example she described about what's just happened in Delhi is uh, very real and very concrete. People want electricity. They want clean water. They want good public health services, they want personal security. And the view is that by electing in someone who's not a crony of the old government, who isn't just money politics, who are just looking out for themselves, we will actually get that. That gives me a lot to hang on to. So I try and ask the same question for the Hong Kong pro-democracy movement. What do they want? Now, yes, there's a lot of economic insecurity. There's personal insecurity. There, there is a view that with more competitive elections, with greater direct engagement between what the electorate articulate and what the leaders turn out to be, with greater accountability, we can actually cure the ills of society. But the ills of society that we're talking about in Hong Kong now are a lot more abstract, a lot more remote, a lot more concrete. And Isabel and Raymond have described these you know, persuasively, evocatively, beautifully. 
And I can relate to that. But what I don't quite get is how the ability to undertake civic nomination, that the electorate, the 7 million people in Hong Kong are able to nominate, not just, not just vote for, but to nominate the candidates, that's not so clear to me. And here's where I am worried. I worry because I think democracy and its strictures have become a beacon on the hill. They represent everything that we ought to have that we don't currently have. It's become a stand-in. You've got a problem, you want to occupy Wall Street, better democratic structures will deliver you what you need. The thing is, what concerns the people in Delhi who are electing the, the every man's party, very different from those who are worrying about the top 1%, from those who are worrying in Hong Kong about their economic insecurity. And if we reflect on their economic insecurity, here's the, here's the nub of the problem. Property prices in Hong Kong have risen 150% in the last six years. Incomes have risen 15%. The, the gap between the property and the unproperty has risen to a magnitude that we don't see anywhere else in the world. And not only is that gap of massive wealth and income inequality hugely problematic, it comes at the tail end of the opposite. We've just had a huge problem in Hong Kong with the previous six years having property prices fall by 70%. Okay. This is a roller coaster that's, that's inconceivable to people elsewhere in the world. It's a roller coaster of massive economic insecurity, and the people who are worrying think that, think that what? Being able to nominate one of five candidates that then seven million other people get a say in, get to elect, that's going to give you delivery from those? I hope that that is successful. I'm not as optimistic, and here's my worry. My worry is that when we get carried away to wanting democracy to fix all of our ills, and we see it doesn't. It doesn't in the United States, it doesn't in this country, it doesn't anywhere else in the world. These people become disillusioned. They turn away from democracy, and what then appeals to them are extremism, nationalism, xenophobia, and societies begin to turn in on themselves. And what I want is a stable transition to an open democratic society, not one that we rush into because we feel somebody in Beijing is pulling the strings. Thank you. I'm now moving because I don't have a microphone. Uh, look, I'm, I'm terribly sorry for starting all this applause thing. We've wasted so much time. <laughs> I'd forgotten that you're all so polite, of course. I was indicated. Somebody said it earlier about the litter and everything. So you're not to applaud me. Uh, five minutes, five pointers to how to make it work. And the issues, direct action, civil protest, etc. cetera. Uh, firstly, a careful definition of success. Uh, the group that's engaged in the action should be able to exchange views on what success is. Success, however, is multi-layered. There's a, a long-term success, and then there are short- to medium-term successes. Success could be not being killed. Success could be not being prosecuted, or better still, being acquitted on being prosecuted. And that's something which is really important to understand what we are doing. 
because one of the great challenges is to work out what a thing is about. It's not like those kids who jump out of school and go down to the street and just rampage and have fun because they're against school fees. There needs to be something thought out. How a crowd generates that is for the crowd, but it's enormously important. Without it, you just become a mob. Secondly, and this is hard, and all of these are hard, show solidarity across the community. A successful direct action will draw support from all walks of life within the place within which it is happening. That is hard. It might be, for example, across class. It could be across gender, ethnicity, nationality. When you have a range of people not necessarily actively engaged, but passively involved, you know you've made progress. The, the analogies here are with uh, violent movements. There are communities that will not engage in the violence, but they will protect those who do. That's when you're on to something. That's when you have something which might work. Thirdly, lever, and this is perhaps the most important of my five, lever what you've got. Have a think about where your strengths are. By definition, you are not strong, or you wouldn't have to take to the streets. But you have some strengths. You need to identify what they are, and you need to lever them. They might be, for example, economic. There's an amazingly interesting scene in Wolf Hall where Thomas Cromwell just says to the Duke of Norfolk's son or somebody, he says, you're over, mate. One word from me, and you have no money. Your debts are called in. And in that moment, we see the landed power give way to economic power. You see it again in 1832 in this country with the passage of the Great Reform Act. Money talks. In some places, the places most likely to have success in the field of direct action, economic power does not have political power. And economic power demands political power. So see if you've got it. Gender, youth, these are important levers in societies which might be run by gerontocracies, which might be run by old men. Opportunities are created by the strength shown by a younger or a, for example, female community, which is outside power, but powerful because of its nature. Labor, one of the most important reasons we got the democracy we have is because of organized labor. Trade unions make a huge difference. That is why so many countries are so keen to ban them because they can create opportunities for change. And the great glory of 20th century United Kingdom is Labour created a party called the Labour Party. <laughs> Honestly. Now, I, 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 the courts tried to destroy it, and they, they got enough law in Parliament, they got enough people in Parliament to pass an act which protected it, and then they were able to seize power through their own party. It started as trade unions. It might be as it was... Uh, during the Cold War in Czechoslovakia, as it then was, it might be intellectual. Intellectual power gnawed at the legitimacy of the Soviet system. And that was powerful. Now, I leave to last international support. I said be careful of international support, but it can be important. So those are three. Fourth and fifth are the hardest, perhaps. Control your team. By definition, you're going to have the problem of managing the crowd because it's a crowd and you don't have leadership in the normal formal sense. One of the big problems is how to manage it so that it doesn't spill in to impatient violence or impatient disruption. You, on the one hand, are tempted to provoke the authorities into demonstrating what you know about them that others don't know, that they're violent and coercive. On the other hand, 
That risks the obliteration of your group. That is how a lot of terrorist groups got destroyed, by provoking the authorities. The authorities then just simply shot them or killed them. And provocation could be sub-violent and still produce reactions which you cannot control. And you can't control your own team. You need to be very careful about provocative acts because your own team might spin into action for the sake of action. So you need to be able to control your crowd, being provocative, engaging in action, but not succumbing to the danger of exhibitionist violence, which means you lose. And you lose not because you're, not because it's, you're immoral, but you lose when you use violence in today's world. We don't live in the world yet now where we justify political violence. Whether we should or shouldn't, I don't know. Fifth, fifth, and it's been touched on by two of the speakers, Isabel and Danny, be patient. It's the hardest one of all. Be patient. This is the really early stages in a change which may or may not, I'm not going to claim history is on its side, which may or may not come. But one thing we know for sure, it doesn't end when something stops in January or February. Be patient. And one of the side effects of that is be prepared to suffer. It's, it's to be prepared. If you're serious about what you believe in, if you set your goal of success, you have to be prepared to suffer. And that is a really hard thing. The number of people who melt away when the risk is of disruption to their lives. The hardest thing of all with patients nowadays is sustainability. It's maybe one of the things we can lever is the use of social media to tantalize, to uh, aggravate the powerful, to bring in supporters and so on. But social media here today, how can we stop it being gone tomorrow? Social media is something which people all join in on a Monday, and on a Tuesday they've forgotten about Hong Kong. So sustainability requires patience, uh, an understanding of the need sometimes for suffering, and regard this to use the words of a person of whom you may not approve as a long march. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you to my panelists for being so excellently disciplined about time, uh, which means we have a good half now for discussion and while you're gathering your thoughts. Um, just two quick observations on, on the base of what I've just heard. Um, one is, it is interesting, and this is the first sort of big event after the launch of, of the Southeast Asia Center, that a discussion like Hong Kong, which at one level has global repercussions, I was very struck when Isabella was speaking that the points of reference, even when you talk about democracy or uh, notions of citizenship or belonging, are not anywhere outside Asia. It is Taiwan, it's, it's Singapore. The, the models are available there to choose from and model on, and that's the conversation that's going on in the region. So this assumption somehow that discussions of democracy are invariably led uh, from Europe and North America is clearly mistaken when you, when you look at the detail of any particular example. The second thing is just like Connor, I, I too was very struck by that line in Wolf Hall, and it seems to me exactly about what Danny was talking about, that a lot of people in Hong Kong are, this is the world of global finance, right? And that, that point about, about that Cromwell delivers is, yes, it's economic power, but it is economic power that is invisible. The debt collectors, are, he, Cromwell knows this because of his past in Europe and Italy and faraway places, which can impact on lives in very specific places. 
So a lot of the anxieties are of, of real estate prices or whatever are not being driven just by local factors but by invisible global factors, which kind of brings this discussion you know, to Britain today and, and during the campaign here of uh, this very interesting question of, on the one hand, global finance, and on the other hand, what does the state do with tax? Why do people, why should people pay tax, which Miliband, to his credit, has, has renewed this discussion, which I think is a very important discussion. And it would be very interesting, I mean, I'm an anthropologist and I'm interested in how people see these things. It would be interesting to ask people why they pay tax. And, if they, and it may be a much more political rather than an, uh, the kind of economic rational act that, that uh, is recognizably an economic uh, action. But anyway, that's, that's just a couple of observations to help you gather your thoughts. But I will take uh, three questions at a time. Um, I will not forget people on top. Um, uh, and if you can please, A, ask a question and not make a statement. If you make a statement, I will cut you off. I'm sorry. Um, and please keep it brief so that everybody gets a uh, look in. Thank you. Okay, so let's start with the lady on top in the middle. Um, so I've got a question about the young people in China. Um, when I talked about this issue to many of my friends in mainland China, they're very indifferent about the issue. They're also indifferent about the June 4th incident, uh, the, the protest in Beijing. So I just want to ask uh, um, your opinion like, on this phenomenon and if, if this will change in the future. Because I think it's something um, the young people in China should also care about. They should care about um, democracy and they, they should care about why Hong Kong people are doing this thing, and it's for the betterment of the people. So, yeah, that's just okay. this indifferent attitude. Thanks. Great. Thank you. Uh, this gentleman in front here. Hi. Thank you. Um, John Strafford. Um, Professor Goethe uh, made the comparison between the struggle for democracy in the UK with what is happening in Hong Kong. Um, and the UK has been governed by Labour and Conservative parties for almost 100 years. Both parties, Labour and Conservative, uh, pre-screen candidates. Uh, in other words, very small committees in those parties determine who can or cannot be a Conservative Party or a Labour Party candidate, just as the Chinese Communist Party is trying to do. Do you think that Chris Patton as a former chairman of the Conservative Party, missed this point uh, when he was doing his negotiations because he thought, well, all they're asking is for what we do in the Conservative Party. <laughs> <laughs> and, and why is it that the students are uh, demonstrating in Hong Kong for having choice, but the students here are not demonstrating in Parliament Square for choice of the Labour and the Conservative Parties? Thank you. Um, and one question in the front here. 
thank you, first of all, for your inspiring sharing. Just a little point up to that statement. I think maybe I come from Hong Kong. My name is Elizabeth. Um, I was um, the host, a former host of a morning show in Hong Kong. And I think that um, to answer the questions um, proposed by the gentleman just now, I think because um, the core issue of Hong Kong actually right now is not just about the democratic movement. It is actually everything is started from the issue from the issue of accountability. It's only because after years that the government refused to listen to the voices of the people that actually drove the motorways to join hands with the radicals. And that's why finally it became a democratic movement, so you know, supported by the mass. And now it is evolving into actually a movement of ideology, an ideology that make Hong Kong people, we have to be different because we are not the mainland Chinese. And this is the core of the issue after all. However, the questions I'm posing tonight is actually about um, what do you think about the role of Beijing after all in this issue? Because um, I've heard just now some of our speakers perceive this as a crisis to the Beijing governments. They are having a kind of headache. But at the same time, from my um, humble point of view, I think they may perceive that as an opportunity, especially among the hard liars of the Beijing government. In fact, before the outbreak of the Umbrella Revolution, there are different groups of motorways in Hong Kong proposing something very uh, gentle political reform, including the pro-Beijing legal scholar, Albert Jan. But all of them are rejected by the Beijing government. It seems like the hard liars is you know, holding power there. And it makes sense because uh, Xi Jinping government is actually fighting against corruption and they don't want um, what's happening in Hong Kong has a spillover effect um, uh, affecting what's happening in China. Okay. Uh, so what do I you think, think about that? Yeah, thank you. Um, Raymond and Isabella, do you want to quickly uh, respond to yeah. them? Yeah. I'll, I'll take and the first follow. one about youth in China. Uh, frankly, we don't talk very much to them for obvious reasons. Um, <laughs> we can't. Um, the ones that I have spoken to they do come to the protest. Some tourists, or the one in Mongkok especially, it was right in sort of the shopping district. They were pulling their suitcases through these like life-size cutouts of Xi Jinping, like trying to get to the hotel, like trying to get to the gold shop or watch shop or whatever. And some of them did stop to chat. And first of all, the thing that struck me was they know very little. The censorship is uh, very effective. The line that the government is uh, propagating in Beijing is that these people are breaking the law, they're disrupting order and disrupting people's lives, and also they never had democracy under the British, so what is the problem? Um, I think another view that is in vogue is uh, among Chinese friends that I've spoken to, or friends of friends, is that you know you don't know how good you already have it in Hong Kong. You can go on the internet unfettered. In China, you know, you can't even use a VPN now. Uh, you can't use anything to do with Google. Um, so, you know, you should just count your blessings and, you know, just live a good life. And the other thing is, um, I mean, the, the Chinese youth who live in Hong Kong, apart from the students, I guess, a lot of them are sort of, uh, uh, they have high levels of mobility. They're well-educated, probably quite wealthy, a lot of them working in finance. I mean, their considerations are, are different. They already live, um, you know, a, a privileged life in mainland China and in Hong Kong too. And, you know, they don't see eye to eye with um, the students in Hong Kong. They don't really understand what it's about. And, you know, fundamentally also, they probably feel patriotic and nationalistic about China in a way that kids in Hong Kong 
or kids in Taiwan don't. And that's, I think, also something that they don't understand, you know, different education systems. And that's precisely, you know, Danny brought it up before, this attempt to introduce patriotic education uh, in 2012, which is how scholarism and Joshua Wong became uh, famous in the first place. That was an attempt to make us in Hong Kong patriotic, you know, and they'll say, hey, in America, you know, you, you sing the national anthem every day. Like, how is it any different? But, you know, people are worried about reinterpretations of things like Tiananmen Square and, and that kind of thing. And that is a battle that is still, still ongoing. Um, and just very briefly on, on the question about the role of Beijing, I agree. I think that, uh, you know, there's, a, there's an explanation now that's a conspiracy, maybe, that what's happening in Hong Kong is really just a manifestation of infighting in, in, in the Chinese Communist Party, the Xi Jinping faction versus the Jiang Zemin faction. I don't know if that's true, but yes, we have a hardline president in power in China right now. You can see that in everything from shutting down VPNs to this anti-corruption campaign. Um, you know, I think at the beginning, people were wondering, oh, could they ask uh, Cy Lung to step down because he appears to be making a mess out of Hong Kong? Well, instead of asking him to step down, they've actually reaffirmed on multiple occasions their support for him and started this mysterious sort of People's Liberation Army linked youth cadet army group in Hong Kong. You know, no one really knows what it's about, but all the signs sort of point to this very hardline stance towards Hong Kong. And again, back to uh, Danny's point and, and Connor as well about emphasizing patience. And these are the reasons why, you know, they're fighting against a very, uh, very hardline uh, a president in China right now. And it's just not an easy fight for them. Uh, shall I answer your question about uh, whether I said it was um, or it has become a political crisis for Beijing government? I think my observation is, in the way, the sentiment in Hong Kong towards Beijing has changed tremendously. If you, call, you know, recall back at the very beginning of you know, after the handover, I think in Hong Kong. Uh, what we witnessed is, is, is like sort of a very high, you know, kind of spirit of patriotic feeling. And everyone actually, you know, loved to become, you know, part of China. I mean, I would say majority in, in, in a way, yeah. And then soon after that, uh, Hong Kong was embroiled into, uh, a, you know, a crisis after crisis, you know, uh, the birth flu and, uh, you know, the, the uh, you know, all kinds of things happened in Hong Kong, you know, even the financial crisis affected Hong Kong as well. But then in those days, I think lots of Hong Kong people believe that it's basically due to the incompetence of Hong Kong government. And then we had, you know, a very competent and, you know, and, uh, you know bright leaders in Beijing. Um, if I remember um, that uh, when uh, Tong Chi Hua Effectively, uh, effectively was uh, forced out from uh, uh, his post as chief executive. There's a quite a strong you know, voice in Hong Kong calling for Zhongji to come to Hong Kong to become you know, the next uh, Hong Kong chief executive. Of course, it didn't happen. <laughs> but then, I think for quite a long time period, there wasn't, in the way, kind of a strong hostility um, against Beijing among Hong Kong people. But then, after what happened now, I think, well, as uh, you know, Isabella just mentioned, uh, you know, from the recent poll, a lot of Hong Kong people don't want to identify themselves as part of China. 
they want to identify themselves as a, you know Hong Kong, as you put it, you know, it's the kind of change of identity. Why? Because they realize it's a Beijing behind the scene, stopping all this from happening. I mean, the democracy. One point I have been saying to others is, now in the past we've seen one country, two system, by largely, you know, largely has been working in Hong Kong. However, we are now facing the challenge of one country, two democracies. Yeah, if we call uh, China, it's one kind of democracy, and uh, of course, depending on how you define it. But in the way, there's a clear discrepancy in the level of development of the democracy. And I think that's the root of the problems. And then because of that, what I would argue is, unless China, we can see very significant improvement in terms of democracy, otherwise, it's very unlikely we can see any you know, kind of a significant improvement of democracy in Hong Kong. Because we all know, you know, in the mind of you know, the uh, Chinese uh, government officials or senior leaders in Beijing, what they worry most is about, if I give Hong Kong full democracy as they, de- they are demanding, how about the other parts of China? You know, when you know, Beijing or Tianjin or Shanghai, could they have a free election of their own mayors? Or ultimately, do they have a say in electing their own leaders for the nation. If that's the case, how about one-party rule the Communist Party government has been advocating and insisting on? I think that's the, actually the root of the crisis because I know in the way the senior leaders in Beijing are really worrying about the, you know, the possible political repercussion of what's going on in Hong Kong. I think that's the, I think the, 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 the key kind of argument in that. Okay, thank you. Does China need Hong Kong? How does China view, how does PRC view Hong Kong? Let's crunch some numbers. Hong Kong has 8 million people. China has 1.3 billion. <laughs> More people travel the Beijing metro every day than live in all of Hong Kong. <laughs> Having noticed this, Hong Kong is absolutely critical to the People's Republic. Why? Because up until 2008, China, the People's Republic, had grown through a process of manufacturing, industrialization. It can no longer do that now. What's it got? It's sitting on 4 trillion US dollars of reserves held in the currency of an economy that is tanking. The United States is playing fast and loose with inflation. China needs to drastically break away from that financial stranglehold the United States has on it. How is it going to do that? It's got to internationalize the RMB. How is it going to do that? It's going to do that through Hong Kong. It's trying to do that through the Shanghai Free Trade Zone, not very successfully. It absolutely needs Hong Kong. Hong Kong needs China. China needs Hong Kong. What China does not need, what Hong Kong does not need, is economic instability. And that's the problem that we see now. That's the trade-off. The two need to work together to get past this. UK PPCs, prospective parliamentary candidates, what a scandal that is. 
Okay, to be elected as a, to be selected as a PPC to stand for 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 election, you've got to convince a psychologist that you are psychologically okay. You've got to. <laughs> hobnob with the other members of your party and convince them through a sequence of interviews or hustings that you are all right, you are one of us. And then after that, you get on the approved list and then maybe you'll be allowed to stand for election. If I removed reference to the UK and kept referring to the party, you would think that we were living in China. But that's the United Kingdom. In the United States, the other great democracy, you know how many elections are run? How many elections are won by the candidate who's got more money? Well, in truth, not 100%. It's not the case that U.S. democracy gives the, gives the golden keys to those who've got more money. It's only 94%. 94% of elections in the United States are won by the people with more money. You know, a recent study by Princeton political scientists found that in every major pol public policy decision, it is the preferences and the views of large corporates and rich individuals that determine what the outcome is. Don't be fooled by thinking that because we live in a Western democracy, our views are actually expressed in the decisions that are made. Now finally, just to end, I am a huge fan of Isabel. She is a beautiful writer. She is the funniest person. I love reading the things she tweets and her Facebook posts. But I'm afraid I have to disagree with something she says here. Okay. I think it's actually quite patronizing and condescending to suggest that the people in China don't know or don't care. It might be that the tourists that come to Hong Kong are the same ones who attempt to open the door of an aircraft to get a little bit of fresh air. <laughs> you know, they, they cause a commotion because they don't want delays. That's the kind of people you see in Hong Kong, right? But that doesn't mean that's what people in China are like. I know lots of people I know lots of people from the People's Republic. Some of them are the students that I see in this hall. Okay. I'm huge fans of them. They tell me about what they worry about. They are not complacent. They are hugely enthusiastic about a, a political and economic future. They are dramatically concerned about pollution of the environment. They're concerned about the lack of public services. They want their country to change. But do they think they're going to get that change by being able to cast a vote? For Xi Jinping? No. That's the realism that they face. So let's not be condescending to students from the PRC. Thank you. At least you have two candidates in Hong Kong. We have some old woman. And when she dies, her son takes over, so it's even worse. <laughs> Uh, if you want to change the British Constitution, however, come to the Institute of Public Affairs, the Constitution UK, we are crowdsourcing a new constitution. That's what I call freedom. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's take another round of questions, which might have to be the final round, actually, because we have to vacate this room at 8 o'clock. Okay, um, there's a hand up there. Thank you. Sorry, actually, I have two questions. One for Professor Gertie. You mentioned that uh, different kinds of power that we can harvest in Hong Kong, but uh, we don't have a large working class, mostly it's middle class, but the middle class is largely subjected to interest in China. So where does that pow economic power that you mentioned would come from in the society in terms of class? And the second one, 
uh, is regarding uh, the political status about Hong Kong as a special administrative region is unique in the world as we don't have the political sovereignty um, which we see in most uh, democratic countries. They have the final say. But in Hong Kong, even if we get uh, one person, one vote, China, as an author authoritarian country, would have the final say on our decisions. So it's like David Cameron can overrule Boris Johnson being the mayor of London. So how do you see this work forward in the future? Thank you. Um, one back, at the back here, please. Are there any others? Um, hi. Um, I, my question is about the role of political parties in Hong Kong. Um, I participated in the um, umbrella movement for the first um, 10 days um, before I came back to London as a student. And um, I think one observation that I saw among the students is that they have a very extremely strong distrust and sceptical attitude towards any sort of political authority, political, including pan-democratic um, political parties, any kind, any sort of it, and even some of the student leaders. Student leaders have been constantly criticised throughout the movement for being not, you know, not being able to represent everyone in the in the protest and a lot of protesters say that they are non-monolithic and being individualistic and doesn't need a this movement doesn't need a leader this is the you know one of the most brought up um, slogan in the movement so this I think um, kind of strangled the development into a more institutionalized movement um, from a street movement to a kind of more long-term political movement so um, you know, just anyone, do, does, do you have any kind of um, solutions or kind of, you know, insights on how to um, institutionalize this into a long-term political movement, but given that kind of austerity? Thank you. Um, and there's one, gosh, there's several questions there. Uh, the gentleman at the back. Um, thank you very much. My question is on the uh, seems to be an emerging sense of a uh, Hong Kong brand of exceptionalism, um, and more specifically, whether you as panelists see a future in the development of such a sense of exceptionalism in the political development of the territory and as part of uh, the PRC as a whole. Uh, the, the sense I get from observations uh, that I myself have made is that there is a perverse um, Im imbalance or contradiction in how the democratic uh, parties and the democratic movements of Hong Kong borrow from the student uh, movements of um, the June 4th uh, incident and uh, its predecessors, but at the same time kind of allies herself to the uh, notion of Hong Kong exceptionalism. Thank you. Thank you. Do each of you want to respond for final remarks on, on okay. all the questions together? But quickly, please. Maybe quickly, I just, uh, you know, uh, maybe answer the question about how to, you know, make the, you know, way forward. Well, to be honest, if you really want to get what you want, you have uh, one, you know, kind of, a, I would say, one person, one vote, and a fully, de you know, full democracy, you have to change basic law. I think that's the first barrier uh, you need to overcome. Uh, because in Article 45 uh, of the Basic Law, it lays down very clearly how the chief executive could be elected. So I think that would be very, very difficult, you know, uh, you know kind of a starting point. But I think for pro-democracy activists, 
if they really and uh, you know care about this and want to uh, make a way forward, I think the first thing maybe they could do also is to convince the general public of Hong Kong why what they are doing or why the, you know, the democracy is beneficial for their lives. I mean, just you know, kind of in a way, going back to what Danny mentioned, because certainly now it's very divided society. Yes, maybe half of the society agree to you about you know, the necessity of the democracy, but then certainly there are the, half, the other half are saying, no, I don't see the benefit of it. Yeah. Secondly, I would say, when Hong Kong was given the privilege of one country, two systems, that was when Hong Kong was the, I would say, um, providing the financial or economic appeal to Beijing. But now, I think if you go to Beijing or go to China, people tell you, Hong Kong? Well, actually, we are helping them rather than they are helping us. So why they are still be so, you know, kind of demanding for democracy? You know, we, they are living on us. I think the second point is, I think you really need to rebuild or strengthen the Hong Kong's, I would say, appeal uh, or attractiveness to China. Making senior leaders in Beijing, you know, think, think about, well, Hong Kong is so important. Shall we give Hong Kong another special treatment? Thirdly, I think, again, although and, uh, you know, Connor said that, uh, well, uh, don't rely on foreign supporters, but I'm afraid if Hong Kong really want to make something out of you know, the whole thing, they really need to get international support. And uh, I don't know how realistic that could be, but then they need to convince, because uh, just Hong Kong, as a technical it, 7.3 billion, uh, million people is very small. It's very difficult to really argue for a strong case. But then I'm not quite sure whether you know, those uh, you know, pro-democracy activists can really be you know, successful in those three areas. Thank you. Um, I'm going to address the question about exceptionalism first because I think you bring up an important point about June 4th. Um, just very quickly, every year since 89, there's been a big gathering um, in Hong Kong, the only place, of course, on Chinese soil that you can have a mem memorial of that scale about June 4th. And yes, um, traditionally, the pro-democracy parties have always identified with the messages of democracy in China, um, you, know, you know, in honor of the memory of those who lost their lives in 1989. That's actually changing for the reason that you point out about exceptionalism. I guess uh, young people, sort of late teens, or even younger, mid-teens, think they don't want to be tied anymore to this um, sort of uh, mourning and lamentation of, of what happened 25 years ago that, frankly, you know, has very little bearing on, on, on them. You know, they, they don't remember this incident. I mean, I remember this incident, but many of those in the streets don't. And they want to, I mean, of course, they want a democratic future for China, but I think for them, they feel that their priority is actually um, what's happening in Hong Kong. And so you do see this sort of, at this, it comes with this loss of confidence and loss of trust with the 
old guard of um, political parties in Hong Kong, like the Democratic Party, who were sort of like the main organizers and the people behind that vigil. There's a second sort of splinter vigil that I, I suspect might actually get extra turnout, a bigger turnout this year because of the events that, that happened. Sort of a, um, a vigil that remembers what happened at June 4th, 1989, but with a stronger emphasis on Hong Kong identity. And, um, and, and related to that, recently, C.Y. Leung in a policy address very shockingly name-checked a University of Hong Kong student magazine for something it had written a couple of times about self-determination for Hong Kong. And that sort of shocked everyone. Like, how is it possible that, you know, he's naming a university student union magazine? And, well, one of the explanations is that, of course, he's deliberately bringing this up to sort of incite, you know, a straw man argument about this threat of Hong Kong exceptionalism, independence, self-determination whatever you want to call it, and sort of create um, a fear among people, you know, this is happening, you know, you have to, you know, we have to put down this, this threat and something that obviously happens in China too with Xinjiang and, and Tibet and those breakaway regions. And, um, and, and so, of course, people went out and all bought this book and bought this magazine, this book that, like, no one had read before, and now it's, you know, in this, another print run and everyone's sort of reading a copy secretly. It's... It's, very, it's all very Soviet. Um, and uh, to look, uh, very quickly about political parties, um, uh, no one has a solution. Uh, there is no one uh, groomed or sort of immediately obvious to lead this democracy movement. And part of the reason is, of course, the entire system is uh, created to stymie any sort of healthy development of, of being in opposition, right? And they don't have the money. They can't compare with pro-Beijing uh, parties, which um, do a lot of grassroots works, and communities have endless amounts of money to do so. I don't know, maybe, maybe Joshua Wong? I don't know. I'm just throwing a name out there. But, you know, the other students, as Connor said, you know, they... they, they they sort of drop off the movement, like when personal, you know, they might go to study, study overseas, they might want to start a family, and, you know, when push comes to shove, I'm sure many people will end up dropping out of the movement too. Thank you. <clears throat> how do we form a political, how do we get a system, a country with viable political parties, active civil society debate, lively democracy? We don't know. Many countries that have been in far more fortuitous circumstances than Hong Kong. We've not had a huge country sitting on their backs, looking at the things they do, have for the last 50 years been trying to build a lively democracy. They have no restrictions of the kind that we see in Hong Kong. There is no democracy that they've been able to build. Malaysia and Singapore, don't get me wrong, they're lovely countries. You want to go on holiday there? You know, by all means, go with my encouragement. It's the best food that you find anywhere in the world. <laughs> but are those societies that you look at and think of as thriving democracies with well-developed soci civil societies that give rise to open democratic debate? No. There's been no interference in their affairs for the last 50 years. They have done squat about being able to build an opposition. Thailand has not even had the excuse of just the last 50 years being free from colonialism. It's never been colonized. Do they have a lively democracy? <laughs> They've got, they, had a, they had a leader who was a multi-billionaire who was populist, who gave money to the poor people, and they chucked him out. They threw him out. This is not you know, where we are. With all the wonderful examples about Taiwan and other places that we've got to look up to, Asia has not yet been able to build strong civil societies and thriving democracies. And I hope Hong Kong succeeds in whatever form we can get it. But the rest of the examples really do need to just shape up and get in line. Does your, what are the boundaries of your Asia exactly? Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs>
Don't get me started on India. <laughs> Next time. Next time we'll do that. Uh, just two things. Uh, exceptionalism, not strong enough, won't work. Exceptionalism is what very powerful countries can do when they want to push around everybody else. Uh, so that won't work. I think power in Hong Kong, don't know, wouldn't comment, don't sure, but I remember what Danny said. Um, uh, he says China needs Hong Kong, so we need to work out what that means and what kind of leverage that gives you and how do you play it in a way which doesn't cause a clash, a clampdown, but grows freedom. Now, Danny was trying to get you to go to Malaysia. I'm going to end on Ireland. I'm going to end on Ireland, unapologetically. We were part of this thing. Then, slowly but surely, Ireland extricated itself from the United Kingdom. It was a dominion, and then what happened was there, the big representative, the Governor General, the Irish chief executive guy hired one of his mates. He humiliated the position. Then when some king abdicated because he fell in love with some girl, I don't know what it was, one of those, it's not Prince Andrew, somebody before that. <laughs> and then the king, the Irish redefined the relationship with the monarch opportunistically. And then they enacted a constitution. So when Ireland declared a republic in 1949 or 1948, nobody noticed. Yep. You can do it. You can grow it. Yep. You have to be very last word I'm going to say, patient. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, thank you, everyone. Thank you for your patience and your participation. <laughs> uh, if if uh, this really is a classic, uh, LSE, as many of you might know, this month is launching an Institute for Global Affairs. And one takeaway, the only message that you might take away this evening is that you cannot understand Hong Kong unless you understand Ireland. And that's why you need an <laughs> Institute for Global Affairs. Thank you all. That's what we're Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.